property between Roxbury and Grand Gorge. Tires, mounting, and wheel balancing for cars, trucks, lawn, garden, farm, and construction vehicles. Open Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, Saturday, 8 till noon. More information at 800-LG-TIRES. 800-LG-TIRES. The Delaware County Chamber of Commerce, a catalyst for sustainable economic prosperity in the Catskills, fostering cooperation, forging partnerships, promoting tourism, providing legislative advocacy, and building strong community ties throughout the region. More information at 607-746-2281 or DelawareCounty.org. Hi, I'm Kent Garrett. Get to know the last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s. We have survived Jim Crow, the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on poverty, the age of Obama, and now the age of Trump. Join us on Thursdays at 9 a.m. WIOX Roxbury, community radio in the Catskills at 91.3 FM and on MTC Channel 20 and for the rest of the world at WIOXradio.org or just tell your smart device to play WIOX. You're listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20, 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi and everywhere at WIOXradio.org, on computers or smartphones, and also with the Radio Garden phone app. This is From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and Zane. Zane, how you doing? Good, good. How you doing? I'm doing just dandy, I guess. Dandy? Well, I don't know. It's a little warm for hunting. I'm not right. really happy about that. It's been uh, nice out after some cold days we got. Yeah, it's good for everything else but hunting. Uh, you know, the deer don't like to move too much. 
The foliage is pretty nice once you get below 1,000 feet right now, but above that, you know, we're at 1,400 feet here in Roxbury, and the leaves are mostly blown off. So we're into that late fall up here in the mountains. But if you want to see foliage, just go down the hill a little bit still. Well, I've been uh, still a good time to plant trees. I've been planting trees for members at our Legacy Tree Planting Program, and I'm just uh, winding that down. Tomorrow I'll be planting uh, some of the last few trees, and I've been waiting to plant this tree all year. It's a mulberry. Mulberry's awesome. Yeah. Love mulberry. So we got a full show tonight. Uh, tonight's topic is biotechnology and forests with NC State's Jason Delborn. He's a professor of science, policy, and society and university faculty scholar, uh, appointed in 2013 to the Department of Forestry and Environmental Resources and the Genetic Engineering and Society Center. He teaches and conducts research at the intersection of environmental policy, biotechnology, and public engagement. Um, He draws upon the highly interdisciplinary field of science and technology studies to engage qualitative research methodologies to explore how policymakers, stakeholders, and members of the public interface with emerging biotechnologies designed for environmental benefit. Let me see if I can get Jason on the phone. Jason, are you there? I am here. All right. We can hear you loud and clear. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. Oh, cool. I've been to Raleigh. How's the weather down there? Yeah. It's still pretty warm, and our leaves are changing. Uh, some of them are falling off the trees, but it's uh, still pretty nice here. So uh, what are you doing on your off time when you're not doing biotechnology? <laughs> uh, I like to go biking. I like to go hiking, play a little tennis, um, all sorts of stuff since my kids went off to college. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I used to live uh, just east of there, I guess, in Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I've done some research there at the, on uh, their water treatment plants. Oh, yeah, I hear about them on the radio all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, well, I guess there's some kind of battle going on, lawsuit. But, um, yeah, so um, tonight's a, a full show, and let's let's get into it. I mean, I think I found out about you through researching the biotech that's surrounding American chestnut, the transgenic chestnut trees. But um, we're just going to talk, you know, all about this biotech and how it fits into the cultural landscape uh you know of today when it when it pertains to forests i guess right sure so and i like i yeah. like how you said cultural landscape because it's you know it's not just a an ecological landscape it's also cultural too so that's really important seems like that to me sure so let's define biotech how would you define it i would define um, biotechnology as as sort of modern methods of doing genetic engineering um so that's distinct from conventional breeding that we would do um, I think, you know, there's a fuzzy boundary around biotech. Um, so, for example, something like marker-assisted breeding where you're using DNA, you know, methods to, to see what kinds of, of crosses you're getting before you grow out the plants. Um, some people would call that biotechnology. Um, I wouldn't call that a biotech tree, um, but I think it is using, you know, tools like biotechnology to assist with conventional breeding. But generally speaking, when people talk about biotechnology in forests, they're talking about genetically engineered trees. Okay. And let's see. So is is I guess we'll get into this on the show. I mean, breeding is is people are more familiar with that, right? Sure, of course. Yeah, that's been happening for thousands of years and it happens without without our intervention as well. And and breeding you're using kind of the the phenotypes, the outward characteristics of plants and animals, right? 
Right. Exactly. That's that's generally how how it's been done. And, and with with genetic engineering, there's more of you know a genetic approach. You're still thinking about phenotypes, um, but the interventions are at the genetic level. Yeah, you're you're actually going into the cell then and just using the the machinery there to um, reach your goals. Then sounds like right. Right. Yeah. But you know, it's yeah. important to realize, of course, that with conventional breeding. Um, you know, even when you're focused on phenotypes, um, you know, let's say you have a tree that you, you know is doing really well in a particular area and you want to cross it into a tree that, you know, might have other desired characteristics like wood quality or something like that. You know, the, the, the crossing of those organisms, um, you know, you're, you're still doing a genetic cross, right? That's how you get the phenotype. Um, and that's the, 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 the strategy behind conventional breeding is that you're combining the genetics of two organisms where you might desire different phenotypical phenotypes uh, to come in the in the in the cross. So it's still it's still genetic uh, changing, um, but you're absolutely right that genetic engineering is happening. Um, the intervention is at the molecular level. Just more sophisticated methods and techniques. Is yeah. A, yeah. So what what is the push for biotech? I mean, I guess we need to back up and. You know, I was reading one of your articles there on on threats to the forest. I mean, what's the background? What's what's the what's the demand for this? Sure, um, you know, and I want to be clear that um, you know I'm not I'm not a genetic engineer myself. Um, I don't have particular interest in pushing biotechnology. I study it as a social scientist, so I'm really interested in it as a phenomenon. But I'm not you know I'm not on the show to try to convince people that it's the solution to every problem or that it's evil. You know, I'm, I'm, I think I position myself in a pretty balanced way. Um, I see a lot of sides, um, but you know, I'm happy to, to kind of give you a sense of what are the arguments around why people, um, you know, think that biotechnology could be an important solution. Um, so, you know, one, one thing to consider is the kind of, in, in terms of forestry, is the kind of threats that our forests are under um, in terms of you know, pests and pathogens um, that have been enhanced with human activities, um, climate change, which can make some trees, you know, um, more vulnerable to, to drought, to heat, um, and also to pests and pathogens that can move in the environment in new ways. Um, you know, there's also dis discussions about the need for more sustainable materials, which can come out of a forest, um, and a growing human population. Um, and so the demand for forest products is predicted to go up, um, even at the same time that we see the threats to forest health as also going up. Um, and so I think, you know, we start to consider biotechnology as a tool when we think about how do we respond to those threats, um, how can we respond to those demands for forest products. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, yeah, and so, you know, the question, I guess, is what might biotechnology offer us that conventional breeding doesn't offer us? in terms of creating tools that could solve some of those problems in forests. Yeah. And, and I mean, is this being considered in, um, you know, as far as emerald ash borer or American chestnut or, I don't even know this one, white bark pine? What's that about? Um, so, so there's, I mean, the, the, there's a report that I was a co-author on with the National Academies, and we, we looked at a number of case studies. I'm honestly not an expert in all those case studies. Um, but what I can tell you is that, you know, we looked at some of the, the well-known threats to different kinds of species of, of trees and forests and looked at 
looked at those problems and what are the potentials for biotechnology to, to be a partial solution there. Um, and so the chestnut's the one that I know the best, um, but there's also some research I know, um, you know, on both conventional breeding and also potentially with biotechnology or on the emerald ash borer. Um, so nothing that's been released into the environment yet, um, but there are you know, definitely discussions about how biotechnology might respond to some of those diseases. And, you know, I was reading this article that I don't know if, if you know more about it, but the USDA Forest Service claims that 7% of the forests will lose 25% of the trees by 2027. That's the report that we that we found, yeah. Um, I mean, really, you know, the predictions are, are quite frightening, um, and I think a lot of that is due, like I said, to, to pests and pathogens um, that, you know, a lot of us know about already in terms of, you know, emerald ash borer. Um, you know, I, I used to live in Colorado for a number of years, and the pine beetle devastation is really incredible. Um, and we also have to, you know, look at what are the predictions around climate. Um, and so you know, hotter, drier summers um, and changes in precipitation and things like that are a threat to forests. And so, you know, we're, I think we're in a situation where a lot of our forests, um, you know, even the ones that look beautiful might be under threat. Um, and so we're, we're looking at a future where our forests are going to have to adapt to those kinds of threats. So, yeah, these types of forest disease require uh, a pest, or a pathogen, a host, and an environment for it to occur. So biotechnology, um, an application of it would be for the host so far, correct? Right. And, and there's actually some interesting different kinds of ideas. Um, so, you know, the report that, that, um, that Ryan may have looked at from the National Academies just focused on genetic engineering of trees. But there are ways to imagine that biotechnology could be applied in other ways. Um, so, for example, some of the work I do, not in forests, but um, in other contexts, uh, looks at the possibility of genetically engineering pests themselves. Mm. So instead of engineering the host, you could engineer the pest. Um, so you might imagine that, you know, one strategy of combating the emerald ash borer would be, you know, to uh, reduce the, the insects that are spreading, you know, that, that, are, that are attacking the trees. Um, and that would be a really different strategy than engineering the trees to be more resistant to the insect. Um, another interesting example with um, with the American chestnut is that, you know, the, the the approach that is being pursued by scientists at SUNY ESF is around a genetically engineered American chestnut tree. Um, but other possibilities that have been floated are around uh, engineering the fungus um, and spreading a less uh, harmful fungus through the environment um, that would you know, outcompete the fungus that's so damaging to the American chestnut. So there's actually some really interesting ideas of how we might use biotechnology, not just for the host, but for the pest or the pathogen as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the, there was this 2018 meeting, right, for us assessing biotech in the forest, and this is what you're talking about when you say National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, and it was between the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities. Do I have that right? Yeah, we, we, we were a, an expert committee that was convened by the National Academies, um, and so we did um, a study over about a year. Um, I think the, the study was published in 2019, um, and it looked at the potential for biotechnology to address issues of forest health. Um, and, I, you know, just to be clear, some of the interest around biotechnology is to increase, um, like, plantation forestry production and things like that, and that particular report wasn't focused on that. It was only focused on 
the potential biotechnology to address issues of forest health. Okay, right. Not not in uh, not as, not in production forestry is what you're saying. Mainly softwoods down south, or what? How do they define right. that? Well, the the you know the the kinds of case studies we looked at were actually mostly trees, um, mostly trees in unmanaged environments, um, and so we weren't we were focused we weren't focused on production forestry. Okay. What kind of questions did you ask at this um, assessment? Gosh, we asked a whole lot of questions, um, <laughs> and we had a we had a lot of different kinds of experts on the panel, which was really exciting for me. So, you know, I'm a social scientist, um, but we had people who were ecologists, we had foresters, we had geneticists, we had policy experts. Um, it was a very interdisciplinary committee. So, we asked all kinds of questions. Um, you know, I think one of the questions that that I think is interesting to think about is. Um, you know, what, what do you need besides biotechnology to solve some of these problems? Um, you know, even if there is a way for biotechnology to contribute, what else do you need? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that our committee agreed on was that, you know, biotechnology is not going to be a silver bullet for most forest health problems. Um, you're going to need extensive breeding pro- programs. You're going to need to, you know, to think about traditional forestry um, and forest health. Um, you know, one example is that the, you know, for a lot of forest trees, there's incredible genetic diversity already out there in the environment. Um, and that genetic diversity is likely to be, uh, you know, really important for those trees, those species, in all sorts of different kinds of environments. Um, and so if we genetically engineer a tree, we can't just expect, you know, that one clone to go out and be successful in all environments. We're going to need to figure out a way to preserve the genetic diversity that's already out there, um, even as we introduce a new kinds of, you know, a new kind of genetics into the into the forest. So that's one example of a kind of holistic approach that our committee was thinking about. Yeah, Let, now let's get into that. Uh, and if you're just tuning in, you're listening to from the forest. Tonight's topic is biotech, biotechnology, and forest with NC State's Jason Delborn. So at this. At this uh, meeting, 2018, with the National Academies, you know, they interviewed people like you, experts, um, social impacts, ethical, and ecological. So let's go into those. I mean, uh, you know, we'll finish up with the social, because I feel like that's probably, that's what you, you seem to focus on more, or do I have that wrong? No, that's right. I mean, because I'm a social scientist. So, yeah, sure. You know, that makes I'm, sense. I study who stu- someone who studies people more than, tre- more than trees themselves. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, man, I just, I don't think you can separate them anymore. I mean, what do you think? People and <laughs> that's trees. That's a fair point. That is a fair point. <laughs> so let's talk about the eco- ecological. I mean, these are so intertwined. It was kind of, when I did this outline, it was kind of difficult to decipher them. Um, so if we go on a tangent here and there, it really doesn't matter to me. But they kind of run into each other, in my opinion. But we could we could try whatever. What were the ecological questions or, or assessments they came up with? Um, you know, I think one of the one of the concerns around using biotechnology is, in a you know in a forest, is what could be some unintended impacts, for example, um, that might be harmful to other organisms in the community. Um, so, for example. Um, on the American chestnut tree that was genetically engineered, um, some of the tests that they did was to see whether, um, you know, the, the leaves of an engineered American chestnut tree would be toxic or dangerous to tadpoles because, of course, leaves fall on the forest floor and into vernal pools and things like that, and tadpoles are going to 
going to be exposed to them. And so, you know, one of the questions that you might have about a tree that's been engineered is how might its leaves or its fruits or any products have impacts on other animals in the forest or in the forest community? Um, so I think those are the kinds of ecological questions that could be asked. You could also ask questions about whether it changes the, how competitive that tree is with other trees. Um, you could ask questions about, you know, how it might have impacts on insects. Um, you know, for some types of, of engineering, for, for example, like drought-tolerant trees, you could ask questions about whether they would use more water from the environment um, than a, a conventional tree. And so you could think about what are the kinds of ecological impacts of an organism that would have a different, different phenotype um, than you would see with, you know, a non-engineered tree. Yeah. I mean, to me, even if they, as a forester, even if transgenic chestnuts or biotech chestnuts are put out there, I feel like ecologically or culturally, <laughs> chestnut's going to struggle. There's just not enough light anymore in our northeastern forest to support chestnut. Red oak is suffering the same as chestnut would. I mean, it needs disturbance, and we just we don't have the light regimes for that. It's great site for maple, shade-tolerant tree. Not so much yeah. for oak up here. Yeah, and it's a good you know it's a good example to think about how you know biotechnology may solve one particular challenge about a tree, right? So for the genetically engineered chestnuts, it's um, you know tolerant of the chestnut blight, which is what really has wiped out wiped out the chestnut in the 1900s. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't solve every problem. So right. you know in issues of deter disturbance or light, or a big one down south is Phytophthora. Um, mm. So you know one single change of trait isn't going to solve a whole host of, of challenges for a particular tree. You know, that said, um, I know that the people who are excited about the, the engineered chestnut tree are thinking about, you know, planting it, for example, and disturb uh, mining lands for restoration. Um, you know, it could certainly be something yeah. that could become a part of the landscape in, in particular places, even if there are, of course, a lot of the forests where it used to dominate have recovered in the sense that their canopies are closed, um, and so you're not going to immediately see sort of a return of the chestnut to its former glory. Um, you know, we, we don't know exactly how that will play out over time, but it's certainly not a short-term project. Yeah, I mean, up here, the, the forest is becoming more, you know, filled with mesophytes or shade tolerance up here. I just don't, it wouldn't happen. But on the other side of it, chestnut's dead. <laughs> so... You know, without that biotech right now, not unless something else happens. Mm -hmm. Do you think when you assess these things, is it does it lean one way or the other? Are people more prone to be negative about something or, or more positive? What do you think? Well, there, there's some, some pretty interesting research about that. Um, and, you know, it's I, I think it's, it's important that we don't put other people or even ourselves just in a yes or a no box yeah. around biotechnology. Um, you know, I think the media when we see like polling about genetically engineered this or that, it's often presented as, you know, this many people are in favor, this many people are opposed. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I, the, the research suggests that people are a little more sophisticated than that. And they might support biotechnology for some reasons, but not others. They might support biotechnology in some contexts and not others. Um, so for example, there was a, an interesting a public perception study uh, done by one of my colleagues, uh, Mark Needham at Oregon State University, um, and uh, you know he was surveying people about their, 
you know, willingness to support a biotech tree in certain kinds of situations um, and versus other types of solutions like conventional breeding or things like that. Um, and, you know, it really varied according to things like um, what kind of environment is this? Is it, is it a plantation? Is it an unmanaged forest? Um, is this trait that we're engineering about increasing like the production of timber, or is it about responding to a, a forest health threat? Um, you know, those kinds of things mattered. Um, and, you know, interestingly, there was even a study that showed that the level of, of concern about planting a genetically engineered tree, um, I think this was in Canadian forests, people were, were more against that than supportive, but it was almost the same level of opposition for planting non-native trees. Um, so, you know, there's a lot going on when people think about um, what their priorities are around forest health and around what is natural and what's desirable in our environment. Yeah, I just wonder who who's being pulled, too. I mean, if you have no skin in the game, if you're not paying the taxes on the land, I just feel like your vote shouldn't be weighted the same, though. Do you know what I mean by that? Like it's easy. To, it's easy I, to have. Like if someone calls himself a stakeholder, but they don't own forest land, I just don't feel like that's the same opinion as someone who does, who bears that cost. Yeah, you you really hit the nail on the head there because you know a lot of like public opinion polling and things like that. Um, you know, we don't usually ask the hard question of well, who did you talk to? Who did you ask? Yeah. Because, um, you know, one of the things I like to say is, you know, people like to, like to reference public opinion. But the reality is there is no public, right? right? Yeah. We, const we construct the public every time we do an opinion poll or every time we try to figure out what a certain group of stakeholders thinks. Um, and so how we construct that public really matters. And, you know, you could have an interesting debate about a particular, you know, intervention about whose voice counts, you know, who, who matters here. Um, and so some of the studies that, you know, that I've looked at, they'll do things like they'll compare, um, you know, uh, public opinion of people who live in the area where the forests are versus a broader public, um, you know, something like that. And I think, you know, there isn't one right answer, right. Um, but I think it's important for us to pay attention to things like that. I mean, for example, like what you just said about if you don't have skin in the game, you know, if you're not, a, um, if you're not managing forest land or you're not, not a landowner, um, you know, I think for something like the genetically engineered American chestnut tree, um, sure, the people who own land where that might be planted or it might come onto their land, like their their voice should matter a lot. But it's also, you know, it's the first genetically engineered organism that's been designed to spread and persist in unmanaged environments in the United States. And so in that sense, maybe other people should have a voice too because it's a big deal. Um, and, you know, what about people who are, chestnut enthusiasts who, you know, are really interested in that species, even if they don't own land, um, should they be allowed to have a say in whether biotechnology should be pursued or not for that kind of restoration? So I think, you know, it's a really complicated question about whose voice counts um, when we have to make these kinds of decisions. Yeah, I think it's also this, what we're talking about, it's uh, we're tying into these ethical impacts, you know, ought we to do it? Um, yeah. Are these ethical concerns um, things that you discussed, and you know whose uh, considerations, um, who that, whose ethics, you know, uh, matter in this situation? How does that make sense in terms of biotechnology? Yeah, no, it's 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 terrific that you're pointing that out. Um, 
one of the things that our report talked about was um, how how we think about what is natural um, really matters when we think about how to manage forests and whether or not biotechnology plays a role. Um, and that it's, you know, it's not, it's not as simple as saying, well, biotechnology is unnatural and conventional breeding is natural. Um, I think there's, there is that dimension for a lot of people um, that, that if, you, if you define natural as sort of the lack of human intervention, then biotechnology looks pretty unnatural. Um, but of course, you know, the breeding that we do is also human intervention. Um, and frankly, it's, it's hard to argue that there is, there's a single landscape in the world that hasn't been impacted by humans. Um, and so what we consider natural is a little bit up for debate. Um, and, you know, you can ask interesting questions like, well, if around the chestnut, for example, you know, it was, it was human activity that introduced the blight to, the, to North America and wiped out that species, right? Um, and so we could ask the question, if biotechnology could be used to restore that species to the North, North American landscape, would that restore the naturalness of our forest mm -hmm. because it's restoring a species that was there before we, before our own activity got in the way? Or does the fact that it's a genetically engineered tree with you know, some DNA in it that was put there by human scientists um, not through conventional breeding, does that make that tree unnatural and so therefore make that environment less natural even though it has a tree that looks a lot like and acts a lot like the trees that used to be there that we, you know, we celebrated as American chestnuts. Um, so yeah. those, those, you know, the ethics, the ethics are really important here. Um, and I think one of the hardest things is for people to realize that it probably makes sense that different people have different perspectives on this. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot, of, a lot of times when I'm, you know, paying attention to debates about biotechnology, people have really strong feelings and they feel like people who think or feel differently are crazy or just don't understand. Um, and in fact, I think, you know, these questions are hard and it makes sense that we have a variety of perspectives, um, you know, on things like what is natural and, and what is ethical in the forest. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me any kind of ethical considerations of new technology, um, the questions are never really fully answered, and, the, and yet the technology is going to advance and move forward anyway. Um, so it kind of makes me think we have to think about a world in which these technologies already exist and we're already using them, and, and that's where we can kind of think about um, their place, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as, as Americans, we, we've sort of grown up in a culture where it feels like technology is inevitable, um, and there's a kind of momentum, and so it can feel like even, even if you're opposed to a technology, well, we're still going to see it. You know, it's just, it's just going to happen, and we just have to, to get used to it. Um, I don't subscribe to that exactly. Um, I understand that, you know, technologies have a lot of momentum and that they're strong interest behind promoting particular technologies, um, and our culture tends to celebrate new technologies, right, not, not to be so suspicious. But we do have regulations, right? We have, we have public policy that does uh, determine how technologies enter our environment. Um, we also make a lot of decisions about not just, you know, yes or no to biotechnology, but which biotechnologies and under what circumstances, and how much testing before they're released in the environment. 
and who gets to control where they're planted and things like that. So even if, even if we you know, live in a world where it's unlikely that once a technology is developed, it will simply go back in the bottle right, and mm-hmm. disappear, we do live in a world where there are so many decisions made about the design of technology and who controls it and, and how it enters our lives um, that I think we shouldn't just sort of throw up our hands and say, well, it's here, so we just better get used to it. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't totally agree with it either, Zane. Because 2007, we were talking about the transgenic chestnuts. So this one does have regulators. Unlike the iPhone, where it's out there, people <laughs> want it, and you you vote with your dollar. This one's is being stopped, <laughs> and it's not going anywhere unless it gets those three approvals or four approvals. How many of the uh, federal alphabet super involved? EPA, USDA. Um, but so this one is being stopped. No, am I, am I wrong on this? What, what, where is it? Do you know, Jason? Yeah. Well, my understanding is that um, the the scientific team at, at SUNY SF has submitted uh, the chestnut, the engineered chestnut for for uh, what's called deregulation. Um, so that it's, it's kind of weird, but it's a kind of regulatory review. And if it's deregulated, that would mean that it would be allowed to be. Um, you know, planted and distributed without a permit. That's essentially what the what the review is is doing right now. It's it's being reviewed under what's called the coordinated framework for the regulation of biotechnology, um, and that's a framework that ba- dates back to 1986. Um, that's been used for any genetically engineered organism, including our food and crops and things like that, um, as well as more recent examples like genetically engineered mosquitoes and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I assume um, it's regulated yeah. in agriculture, um, just not, but we do have GMO food. But when we're talking yeah. about forests, as you just said, Jason, this is a different thing that people are are less familiar with. And I feel like, you know, you probably saw it in the bullets, pre- that old preservation versus conservation. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, a lot of times when we have people on the show, uh, we're talking about preservation of some time period, maybe before Columbus or something, the Columbian Exchange, or, or to go back to some period – so if you introduce this biotech, you're kind of going against that wilderness ethic, right? We're having this old debate again. It's been going on since the late 1800s, the old Muir versus Pinchot thing once yeah. again. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the biotech yeah, is yeah. saying is, – is, is doing that. It's bumping up against that. And I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just, I'm just, just an observation. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think, I think biotechnology does run into those um, longstanding debates about – and I think, you know, to me, that kind of preservation and conservation and – and uh, you know uh, what ecosystem services frameworks like these are all different ways to think about um, what we value, how we value nature, um, and how we value natural resources. Um, so to, you know, to me, it's not surprising at all that biotechnology is is making us reconsider those things um, and face those debates again. Yeah, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is biotechnology and forest with NC State's Jason Delborn. We're going to take a break, but we got plenty more questions. Up next. When I wake up, well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out, yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who goes along with you. If I get drunk, well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who gets drunk next to you. If I heave up, yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who's heaving to you. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., talk about a different forest-related topic. I think that was the Proclaimers, a Canadian band. Are they Canadian, Jason? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so we're talking about biotechnology and forests with NC State's Jason Delborn. Um, so what's the, the difficulty with trees and biotech? I mean, what's the difficulty? They're, just, they're, they're long-lived, for one thing, no? I mean, how do you study something like this? How do you put them in a lab? How do you exactly. know it's yeah, safe? that's one of the things that our, our uh, National Academies report talked about was that, you know, one of the, the big differences between doing biotechnology with trees versus agricultural crops um, is, you know, trees are large, they're long-lived, um, you know, you can't grow them to maturity in a greenhouse. Um, and so, you know, that, those are some logistical challenges. And it's even, you know, a challenge in the research community, right? So professors and graduate students who are identifying research projects 
Um, what does it mean for them to think about working on a long-lived organism like a tree um, where the research would have to stretch decades? Um, so, you know, in some ways it's not surprising at all that we've seen a lot more attention scientifically to crop species uh, rather than forest species. Yeah, that makes sense. You have yeah. something, uh, Zane? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, um, well, I mean, this is kind of like an extension of other kind of management we do in the forest. Um, and uh, I guess I didn't really have a question there. Well, like pesticides and stuff? What yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean, we use chemistry in the forest uh, to control plants we deem to be interfering with uh, ones we uh, like to cultivate. Um, and that's more of uh, limiting plants rather than promoting uh, modified plants. I wonder if those are kind of things that you guys considered or see analogous uh, situations. I think it's a good example of, you know, even in, so, you know, any sort of human intervention, right, is something that we decide to do. Um, and it changes the dynamics of a forest that's left alone um, that isn't going to be impacted by human intervention. And so that intervention, I mean, even, I think you said something at the beginning of the show that you're, you're excited about planting trees. Planting trees is an intervention too, right? Absolutely. Um, and we're pretty comfortable with that, right, as, as we should because we've been doing it for a long time. And we're pretty comfortable with things like, um, you know, trimming trees and maybe, uh, you know, doing mechanical types of, of work in forests. And, and we've gotten comfortable, um, a lot of people have anyway, with the applications of chemicals, right? So that's become something that a lot of people are comfortable with in terms of intervention. Genetics is a different story, right? We haven't had the experience or the time to say that genetic engineering is a tool or an approach that, a lot, that most people are comfortable with in a forest. Um, and so that we're, we're in the middle of that right now. We have to make decisions about what we're comfortable with, what we want to pursue, um, and under what conditions. Yeah, I think the, the regulatory environment that we were talking about before the break has learned a lot of lessons from uh, pesticide use in the environment. Um, and I imagine they're going to apply a lot of those lessons to regulating biotechnology in forest ecosystems. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Um, and, you know, I think one of the, the – the, for some people who are excited about biotech trees or, or biotechnology in general, um, they see it as a possible replacement for chemistry strategy, strategies. Um, and so, for example, you know, if we could we, – we know that pesticides have off-target effects almost all the time, mm -hmm. right? Um, but with genetic approaches, could you manage pests in a way where there weren't those off-target approaches? Um, so, for example, I'm, I'm working on a project with a scientist at the University of Minnesota about the genetic biocontrol of invasive carp. Okay, so that's a, a fish species um, that's an invasive species in the Great Lakes region. Um, and, you know, there are ways to manage invasive carp. Um, some of those ways use a lot of toxicants um, and have a lot of off-target effects. But could we have a genetic approach that only targets the particular species that you're after? Um, so one of the reasons people are excited about biotechnology is to get away from some of those those off-target effects that we've seen through through chemistry strategies. Yeah, I mean, farmers would claim that, right? By uh, genetically modifying certain crops and stuff, they use less pesticide. I mean, at least that's what I've read, and some farmers have told me. Yeah, it, I mean, that's a that it's in itself is actually a really uh, complicated story because 
in some cases that's been true. Um, in other cases, uh, that hasn't been as true, and in, and in a lot of cases, it's it's faded away a little bit. So as you as you put out, um, you know, like for example, BT crops, um, the first generation of those those plants which were expressing their own pesticide, um, those you know by expressing the pesticide in the environment over and over and over all the time created resistance among the insects. Um, and so those first generation BT crops had to be further improved um, yeah. so that they could work uh, for, for the past over time. So it's, it's a really complicated story, but certainly one of the, the hopes has been that, that biotechnology would, would change some of the ways that we use, um, that we use chemistry in, in agriculture. I mean, everything's going to, you know, everything takes work. I think we forget that in the woods. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everything must be improved upon and, you know, like uh, when you were talking before, I mean, I would consider not cutting an intervention on purpose. You know, we have a lot of forest preserves in New York State, and that is deliberate. These are deliberate areas where we decide we will not cut at all. And to me, that's an intervention. Um, hmm, there are impacts of that for sure of not cutting. You are basically saying we're only managing for shade-tolerant plants at the expense of oak, hickory, and what would have been chestnut, mountain laurel, blueberry, whatnot. Right. Those are all going away despite climate change. But it takes work. I think we forget that, though. Everything that's good, it will take work, whether it's you know developing biotech or Roundup Ready, whatever. Everything must be improved upon constantly, I feel, in my opinion. Yeah, it's interesting that you, you call that an intervention. I think I would call it a decision, but, but it is a kind of non-intervention because you're, you're saying we're not going to go – we're not going to intervene in the forest. Yeah, um, and it's take abnormal. Action. You know, I, yeah. I mean, we have areas that we know, like the Shangam Ridge, for example. We know that you know people were burning there for thousands of years, and we watch maple, red maple, grow up and outcompete sassafras. And we say, well, you know what? This time, we're not going to do anything about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. To me, that's mm-hmm. an intervention. That that's that's abnormal, uh, in my opinion. But you know, it is to me. It's an opportunity cost. Let's just say that. Yeah. Well, it's a, you're also. I mean, I think what you just were when you talk about burning for thousands of years you're talking about before europeans right and so yeah um you know one of the really interesting questions too around forestry in terms of what's natural and what's normal is it and and this gets to your point i guess is that is a lack of human intervention natural and normal given that a lot of our forests in north america were impacted by you know practices of of native americans and first nations for a really long time and so even like the, the the time period that we say this forest is natural and this forest is not, um, you know that reference point actually really matters. Yeah, and this this is a good conversation. This is why we need to have this because people need to talk more openly about defining the terms of natural and and at what point are we are preserving or what are we preserving if we are doing that. You know, so yeah, it's, it's pretty yeah. it's pretty cool to think about it. Nothing else. And I also just want to mention, um, since since we we touched on the issue of Native Americans, one of the components of my research was uh, to engage with some Native Americans in New York State about their understanding and perceptions about the genetically engineered uh, American chestnut tree, um, because we felt like it was really important to to think about including their voice in conversations about this tree, um, given that this that the tree could be reintroduced. Um, you know, on their ceded territories um, and also could even cross into their sovereign territories now um, because, of course, if the, if the chestnut is released into unmanaged environments, at some point it could end up 
on you know a Native American reservation. Um, and the interesting political question is, what does that mean um, for the way that we respect sovereignty of Native American nations? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, that, <laughs> yeah, that, it's a tough one. That yeah ties into kind of like my broader question. Um, so yeah. I, I went to SUNY ESF, and I remember driving by their uh, uh, experiment station, um, and I would always see those chestnut trees with the bags over the twigs. And mm-hmm. until I asked some questions, I realized that they're bagging uh, the um, the flowers so that they won't release pollen into the environment. That was one of the stipulations of their project. Um, in your uh, meeting, um, did you discuss any of these kind of control problems or security concerns when it when it comes to more than just chestnut, but biotechnology in general, especially when we see biotechnology like CRISPR being so sophisticated that you could practically um, kind of engineer things, uh, you know, take it home and do it yourself, maybe? Yeah. Um, Well, you know, on the the regulation point in terms of, like, bagging the flowers and things like that, um, you know, the way that that the USDA allows research permits for genetically engineered trees is there have to be a kind of confinement strategy, um, so to ensure that you're not going to see the release of that genetic material into the broader environment. Um, and so for when they were doing experiments with the chestnut, they had to bag the, the flowers and things like that. Um, and that does raise, you know, one of the things we talked about in our report is that it, it raises some difficulty um, in that if we want to understand and do research on how these genetically engineered organisms would behave in, the, in the, an unmanaged environment, we have to let them interact with the environment at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, right now our regulatory system is set up where, it, um, you know, either it's highly regulated and is permitted for every planting or it's essentially deregulated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and we're not even going to necessarily monitor it anymore. Um, I don't think our committee said this uh, specifically, but, you know, I could imagine – more of a, a, you know, a medium position where maybe something gets approved for limited release and we continue to study it. And there has to be monitoring um, to look at the kinds of impacts, uh, how it's behaving in the ecology and things like that. But right now our regulatory system doesn't do that. Um, have you, as a social scientist, have, have you have you assessed at all, like, culturally our, our um, ability to assess risk? You think it's gone up or down, and how do you think? And if not, like, how do you think that influences biotechnology? Because I feel like in New York State, our our like, for example, our uh, risk averseness to fire. It's uh-huh. just we're not going to use prescribed fire. That tool has been taken out of the toolbox, at least for the foreseeable future. I mean, how does that fit in the biotechnology? You know, because I'm not. I don't really know that much about biotech, so I don't have a strong opinion. But I feel like risk assessment. And any kind of management in the uh, landscape is going to really influence decisions. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Risk assessment is a really powerful tool um, that's really baked into a lot of our regulatory institutions. Um, and so, you know, frequently, uh, you know, a formal risk assessment is required before we allow this permit or we, you know, deregulate something or, or what have you. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that a lot of people miss around risk assessment is that while risk assessment is done by experts, it's informed by values. And so the values that inform the risk assessment are not 
you know, some sort of fancy technical thing. It's, it's basically what do we care about? Right. Um, and so, you know, when we think about risk assessment of, of using prescribed fire, like, right, people care about, uh, you know, uncontrolled burns that might damage their house, right, or a community. Um, sure. People care about the risk of, uh, you know, the cost of fighting fires that get out of control. Um, but another risk that we could certainly think about is what's the risk of declining forest health from a lack of fire, right? Or what's the risk of having to use other types of control methods or losing a particular species that's, that's not going to compete as well. So, you know, I think the, the risk assessment is often thought of as like this expert thing that, that people can't even participate in. But in fact, a lot of us could participate in risk assessments because we all have values and we care about different things. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that for sure. Yeah, the risk of not burning. I mean, um, God, I, I can't can't prove it because, you know, we're just sitting here in the Catskills. But, man, I wonder if a lot of our tree diseases are due to not sterilizing the forest once in a while. But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, I mean, certainly across the country, there's increasing recognition, right, that our, our um, you know, our – single preoccupation with just preventing forest fires you know I, i'm you know i grew up seeing Smokey the bear and and you think that the all you have to do to take care of the forest is just make sure to not start a forest fire right yeah and so that's been our that was our forest policy for a long time um and i think there's increasing recognition in the forest service even that you know we that fire is a, a natural you know there's the word again a natural part of the landscape and is going to have a, an important service to forest health um, and we've gotten in the way of that. Um, and so we have to adapt our practices and think differently. But it's really hard to adapt those practices because fire creates risk. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like, that, you know, there's a consequence to to getting rid of that option, that opportunity. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Unintended and, you know, if we, think about, if, we, if we think about biotechnology, what are the risks that people care about, right? Yeah. So some some of the obvious ones are... You know, what if you introduce an organism that's going to harm other organisms, right? Or what if you're going to introduce an organism that produces something that's, you know, even toxic to people? So one of the concerns about the genetically engineered American chestnut is, well, chestnuts are edible. Are, are those chestnuts going to be dangerous to eat? Um, and so, you know, part of the, the regulatory review process is to look at things like the equivalency of engineered chestnuts and conventional chestnuts in terms of, their nutritional profiles and things like that. But another risk for some people is, you know, if they have an, uh, you know, an absolute, uh, you know, fear or disgust with genetic engineering, then just the risk of genetically engineered organisms moving through the landscape, that's a risk, right? Like the appearance or the existence for them is a risk. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's really hard for a risk assessor to do a risk assessment in a regulatory agency for. But the reality is that, you know, for some people, that's one of their values is they don't want any genetic engineering. Um, they, you know, they find it disgusting or, or wrong or, or what have you. Um, and, you know, I don't think that, that that represents most of the American population, but there are certainly very loud voices um, that are opposed to all biotechnology in all contexts, whether it's agriculture or forest or what have you. Well, you know, I, I appreciate this conversation. You know, I, I just feel like if we continue to have rational conversations that try to assess the, the risk, the cost, and benefits, then that's a better one. 
you know? I think so, yeah. And, <laughs> I, you know, I, and know. I think part of, part of my work as, as a social scientist is I'm really interested in these ideas of public and community and stakeholder engagement. And so I'm interested in broadening the conversation that we have about decisions that we might make about emerging technologies. Um, because I think, you know, too often people feel really left out of it. Um, you know, the, the engineer chestnut's a good example where, um, you know, our regulatory institutions like the USDA, which is considering the, the GE chestnut right now, you know, they had an open public comment period, right? Mm. But how many people knew about that? Um, and and how, many, how, how many people would feel like they have a real voice in that process? Um, I would say not too many. We don't make it easy um, in American political culture for people to have their voices heard around these kinds of issues. Um, but there are ways to do it um, that are better than just a, a public comment period that's posted online. Yeah. Well, um, Jason, believe it or not, we're out of time. <laughs> the, the conversation hour, could go on forever. The, right? the hour flew by, so that must mean it was a good show. Um, yeah, thank you for taking the time and coming on. It was my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Um, have a good night. Thank you. Yeah, if you just missed the show, that was uh, Jason Delborn with NC State, and we we're talking about biotechnology and forests. And um, that's all the time we have on From the Forest. See you next week. Good night, everyone. Oh, the neon lights were flashing and the icy wind did blow. The water seeped into his shoes and the drizzle turned to snow. His eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low. Then the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. For his castle was a hallway and the bottle was his friend And the old man stumbled in from the forest Up a dark and dingy staircase the old man made his way His ragged coat around him as upon his cot he lay WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. Sweet Pea Supply Company in the hamlet of Halkettsville for fresh-made baked goods, prepared dishes, and Jane's ice cream. A general store with an international selection of chocolates, condiments, and gifts. Open Thursday through Monday, 11 to 7. Sweet Pea Supply Company, Bragg Hollow Road, Halkettsville. 607-326-6776. 607-326-6776. Weekly specials posted at SweetPeaSupplyCo.com. Diamond Hollow Books on Main Street in Andes for secondhand vintage and new books. Specializing in literature, the arts, Dante, mycology, and Emily Dickinson. Children's books and stationery. And Diamond Hollow also purchases used books. Open Thursday through Sunday, 10 to 5, by appointment or anytime the front door is open. Upstairs at 72 Main Street, Andes. Readings, book signings, and event schedule at diamondhollowbooks.com. Home Goods of Margaretville, corner of Main and Bridge Streets in Margaretville, New York. 
now carrying spices, flour, jams, mustards, coffee and tea, organic vegetables and fruits, and local eggs, milk, cheese, and baked goods. And, of course, cooking basics and tools of the trade for everyone at home. Home Goods of Margaretville. Open every day. 845-586-4177 or 